if you uh, scan the, um, the uh, for sale signs or the real estate ads in a newspaper or an internet site these days, it wouldn't be uncommon to find a listing with the title, Church Building for Sale. In fact, with congregations closing their doors all over the United States, something has to be done with all of these facilities that are some suddenly made available. While some are picked up by other congregations and some for community centers and businesses, many of these old churches are now being used as homes. According to one realtor in Dallas, desanctified churches are the number one type of buildings converted to residential use. It gives a whole new meaning to the term church home, doesn't it? Sorry, another bad pun. <laughs> One listing said this, the altar has been adapted for use as a granite and stainless steel themed kitchen in homage to the cooking gods, the cooking gods. It went on, the choir loft has been rewired for a home theater and the baptistry repurposed into a soaking tub. The sanctuary and the fellowship hall now contain, among other things, a game room, a music room, an exercise studio, and 11 bedrooms. This 15,000-square-foot, desanctified, and converted home could be yours for a cool $2 million. Now, I'd be the first to argue that there is nothing holy about a church building itself. And even to admit that my wife and I have secretly dreamt of someday converting one of these old churches into a home. But what ought to alarm us about this trend is not the use of the building for other purposes, but the fact that so many church buildings are now, in fact, available. Depending on which estimate you read, anywhere between five and 10,000 churches are closing their doors every single year in the United States. And all this is happening while our nation is spiritually declining and arguably more in need of the life-changing news of the gospel of Jesus Christ than ever before in our history. So what's going on? How have we gotten to a place where a government of the people, by the people, for the people, a government that was founded for religious freedoms is increasingly full of men and women who lack solid virtuous character? How have we allowed Hollywood and the entertainment industry to pipe immorality into our homes and our lives in such a degree that morality has become a moving target these days. And how have we gotten to a place where we have an entire month to celebrate pride and behaviors once almost universally believed to be wrong? Ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that the reasons for the closing of so many churches and the decay of our culture are closely linked. It's not culture's fault. The blame doesn't rest on the government. The problem does not begin in Hollywood. It begins in the church. It begins when men and women like you and like me are so comfortable with our own prosperity, with our own lifestyles, with our own wealth, with our own ability to acquire resources that we place our trust and our hope in the wrong thing. And rather than trusting in the creator, we begin to trust in creation. And when we do that, we lose a passion for Jesus Christ. 
It's a problem that Jesus spoke directly to in the book of Revelation. Perhaps, in fact, I would suggest no other church in the New Testament is as much like the church of the United States as the church in Laodicea, a community we're going to look at this morning. You see, this church had lost its impact on its community. Its members weren't being persecuted for their faith like churches around them were. They didn't want for anything. There was no need to cry out to God because they could help themselves. They were wealthy, they were comfortable, and no one really wanted to think about eternity until death because life was good for them here on this earth. Sound familiar? The letter we're going to read this morning, I promise you, is going to strike uncomfortably close to home. We're in the final week of a study through the seven churches of Revelation, and if you missed any of them, you can go to our website or to our Facebook page, and you can view the past six weeks of these series. What we've discovered through them is that the book of Revelation, while holding a futuristic importance, which you'll especially notice if you read the rest of Revelation, this book had direct impact on the church to whom it was addressed and continues to have impact on all those who have an ear to hear and can hear what the Spirit says to the churches. While the evangelist John penned the words, it's a message by Jesus Christ himself who visited John in a vision. It's a message that was designed to to encourage and to challenge Christians in an increasingly hostile environment. And it's a message for any who would hear it to apply to their own lives and their own faith. Before we open that letter together, I want to tell you a little bit about the hometown of the Christians to whom this letter this morning um, is addressed. It's the city of Laodicea. See, Laodicea was a fairly old city. It had an enormous amount of wealth. It could be compared perhaps to Silicon Valley or Beverly Hills of today. Located where three highways converged, it was a center of banking and finance. It was also the home of manufacturing facilities that made woolen garments like rugs, thus the Turkish rugs that we know today. There was a medical school there renowned for its cutting-edge ophthalmology. With so much money coming through the city, Laodicea became the home of what you could call today millionaires. While the homes of wealthy people in other cities were hundreds of square feet, what we know from archaeologists is that in Laodicea, their homes of wealthy people were thousands of square feet, much larger than anyone else in the region. They had a huge sport stadium, and while other renowned cities had one theater, Laodicea had two. They had elaborate spas. They had fabulous shopping centers. It was an extremely desirable place to live. The real estate market there might have been something like it is in San Antonio today. There was only one problem with Laodicea, at least the residents were aware of. It was the temperature of their water. The city sat on top of a step that spanned the Lycus River Valley, and it had to have their water piped in using an elaborate aqueduct system that would bring water from four miles away, an engineering feat in the day. Well, one neighboring city had a hot spring and another had an ice-cold spring, Laodicea's water was tepid. It was lukewarm by the time it reached them. It was neither hot nor cold. Now keep that lukewarm water in mind because it's going to be vitally 
important as we read our text this morning. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, and let's stand for the final reading of these seven letters by Jesus to this church. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. You may be seated. As has been the case in every other letter, Jesus introduces himself in a unique way. And look at what he says here. Keep your Bibles open. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, he writes the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, Jesus has a lot of names in Scripture. We know him as Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah, Lord, Savior, Lamb of God, Prince of Peace, just to name a few. But you've probably never heard anyone call him the Amen before. We say that word to finish our prayers, right? And sometimes if the preacher says something really good, someone like Eric will call out, Amen. Amen. Thank you. There's only one other time in the Bible where amen is used as a name, and it's in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, and it's actually hidden by the English translation. The word amen comes from the Hebrew language. It essentially is an affirmation. Jesus used it numerous times throughout the Gospels as he would say to people what's translated as verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. It it also connotes a, a finality or the last word. So here Jesus is identifying himself as both God's affirmation and God's final word. What's more, he identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Now some witnesses would show up on time, but they couldn't be counted on to be true in that culture. And some witnesses would, would not show up, could not be counted on to show up on time, but they could be counted on to be true. Jesus says, I am both faithful and true. And what's more, he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. 
This harkens back to the truth of the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, where he wrote, For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the beginning. He is the first word, and he will be the last word. Jesus says, remember, I am the one who was before, and I am the one who will be in the end. In a nutshell, he is God's final word and his first word. And Jesus reminds us, church, I created this world, and everything will find its consummation in me. What I say is trustworthy. What I say is faithful. I'm in a position to know and to speak and a position of authority. And why is that so important? Because what Jesus is about to say is going to be painful to this church. This church needs to remember the authority of Jesus Christ. They need to remember his preeminence. They need to remember his trustworthiness in order not only to hear what Jesus will say, but to heed his words. And what we're going to see is that they, in fact, need to be reintroduced to Jesus Christ all over again. You see, it seems like the church in Laodicea lacks a relationship with Christ. Look then at Jesus' message to this church. Unfortunately, he has nothing nice to say to them. If you want to follow along in your outlines, you'll see, first of all, that Christians in Laodicea were neither hot nor cold. We find that beginning in verse 15. Look at with me. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Jesus uses the worst characteristic of their city, the one they are all familiar with every time they go to draw water. The one thing that they can't seem to fix, the tepid temperature of their water. And he describes their spiritual state with those same pictures. They aren't hot. Hot water brings healing. The word used in the Greek for hot is zestos. We get our English word zealous from it. Jesus says, you're not zealous about your faith in me anymore. You don't bring healing to anyone. You also aren't even cold. Cold water at least is refreshing, and it gives rest to the weary. Jesus says you don't refresh anything or anyone anymore. Your faith is tepid. It's lukewarm. And tepid faith is no good to anyone. There are two things we learn about tepid faith in verses 16 and 17. First, you'll see in your outlines, tepid faith makes Christ sick. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word doesn't mean to spit like I sometimes spit as I'm preaching, okay? Um, no, it, it actually means to vomit. It means that Jesus was actually nauseous at the thought of their faith. Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? That's a crushing indictment. It would have been painful to receive. And what if Jesus actually thinks the same about us? How would we know? Well, we can tell because Jesus gives us a description of what tepid faith looks like. What we find is that tepid faith gives the appearance of satisfaction. I don't mean contentment in a good way. I mean to be satisfied with where you're at in your faith and not want to grow. These Christians appear to have it all. They want for nothing. Their material needs are met. They're very satisfied with their lives. Look at verse 17. For you say, Jesus continues, I am rich. 
I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. You see, they claim three things, when, in, which in actuality, Jesus says, are not truths about their state, but are actually lies. And apparently the Christians there are, are lying to themselves well. At first they say, I am rich, when in truth they are very poor. Now remember, this city is very well off, and apparently the Christians were doing well. They have an abundance of possessions. They live in homes that are larger than those of any other communities. They have better shopping and better entertainment than anyone else. And perhaps they assumed, catch this, that their economic prosperity pointed to God's favor on them. Have you ever heard that argument before? Hear me, ladies and gentlemen, there are no shortages of, shortage of churches here in San Antonio, across our nation, on the internet, and on television today that will tell you that if you are walking in a right relationship with God, that you will be healthy and wealthy. And they'll tell you that if you're struggling, if you've lost your job, if you have some sort of physical ailment, if you can't pay your bills, then obviously God must be upset with you because God blesses those who are faithful. They show up at church in their luxury cars with their Rolexes and expensive clothing, and they assume that God gave it all to them because they are living right. What they ignore is that there are plenty of non-believers who are just as wealthy, and there are plenty of dedicated and faithful Christians who are struggling and poor. The same mentality seemed to be alive and well in Laodicea. A satisfied church said, I'm rich. And therefore, since I'm also a Christian, well, my riches must be a sign of God's favor in my life. Jesus says, Laodiceans, you're actually poor. But he doesn't stop there. He also points to the claim, I am resourceful. In truth, they are pitiable. Notice what he says they claim after they say they are rich. He goes on to say, you say I have prospered. In other words, they believe they had acquired the things they had. They deserved all the credit for what they knew to be, what we know today to be grace. They said they had worked it out. They had earned what they had. No one gave it to them. You see, while other cities in the region had accepted grants to rebuild their homes and businesses following earthquakes, these people prided themselves in the fact that they hadn't accepted help from the government. They'd pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak. In the words of Frank Sinatra, they would say, I did it my way. Jesus says, let me tell you something, Christians in Laodicea. You aren't as resourceful as you think you are. In fact, you're pitiable. The picture is that of a drunk in the cold who is too drunk to feel his own condition. He's numb to his real state. Finally, he points to their lie that my needs have been realized. The truth is they are naked. These Christians insisted that they didn't need anything. They were so well off that they couldn't think of anything else that they needed. You ever felt like that at Christmas time, by the way? I have to confess I have where someone asks you, what do you want for Christmas, and you have a hard time coming up with something, you get to that point in your life where you just don't need anything anymore. I believe that's the case in these, the spiritual life of these Christians. At least they think that they don't need anything anymore. They didn't cry out to God on a regular basis because their daily bread was provided for and so much more was taken care of. They weren't living in poverty, wondering where their next meal would come from. And so they didn't need to, or at least they thought, rely on God. And the problem with physical, material wealth 
is that it tempts us to place our security and our hope in things that perish, in things that Jesus says moth and rust can destroy. And when we find comfort and we find fulfillment in them, we forget just how dependent on God we are. And it's easy then to miss just how wanting we actually are. And apparently this church in Laodicea, while externally satisfied and having their needs met, was in fact naked before God. Naked. A city known for its looms, for its manufacturing of linens. Jesus says, you're naked. Jesus says, you're spiritually wanting. This church has a false image. They think they've got their acts all together. They're rich, they're resourceful, their needs are all met. Jesus says, you're poor, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're naked, and you're blind. Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher and Lutheran theologian of the 19th century, said this. It's a great quote. There are, in the end, only two ways, to, two ways open to us. To honestly and honorably make an admission of how far we are from Christianity of the New Testament or to perform skillful tricks to conceal the true situation. Christians in Laodicea were only concealing their true situation. They had the appearance of being wealthy, with keen insight, and of being well-clothed. But with all these skillful tricks, all they've done is turn off their passion and their zeal for Jesus and replaced it with a faith and deeds that were vomit-worthy. Is it possible this morning, I wonder, that Jesus would say the same thing of any of us? On the outside, we look like we've got it all put together. We're clothed well. We're wealthy. We want for nothing. We pride ourselves in our independence, in our resourcefulness. But inside, our hearts and our souls have become calloused as we have stopped depending on God, and we have begun depending instead on our wealth and what we can do on our own. Before we know it, our faith isn't full of passion. It's not full of zest. Our faith and our actions don't bring healing or refreshment to anyone. Instead, we're going through the motions as Christians, attending church and doing the right things, but really our deeds are what Kierkegaard called skillful tricks. To the church in Laodicea and to you and I, Jesus has a message. He's got words of counsel. We find them in verse 18, and we find three parts of his counsel. First, he says, acquire, I would suggest, faith or gold. Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Obviously, he doesn't say, mean, show up at my jewelry store with your visa and purchase gold. What's he talking about here? It seems that Jesus is, is speaking about faith to the, these Laodicean Christians intent on their investments, desiring to gain gold and riches. Jesus says, buy from me what matters. We get an idea of this gold when we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where we're told this, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, these Christians, Jesus says, need to focus on acquiring what really matters in life, a faith that is tested and refined through trials and struggles in order that they might one day gain spiritual wealth. 
Second, Jesus says, acquire righteousness or white garments. As we learned two weeks ago when we studied the letter to Sardis, the idea behind keeping one's garments unstained is refusing to participate in the idolatrous facets of society. One of the mistakes I think that you and I make today is believing that we are no longer guilty of idolatry because we don't have idols that we bow down to. We don't have temples to other gods that we visit. In reality, ladies and gentlemen, any time we elevate anyone or anything in our hearts over God, we are committing idolatry. When we redefine idolatry and we understand it as a displacement of God from the throne of our lives, we realize that we are all too frequently guilty of committing idolatry. And every time we commit idolatry, we're like the first century Christians who assumed a little bit of worship in the temple of a false god doesn't hurt. As long as you worship primarily the Lord your God. To them and to us, Jesus says, your garments are stained. You've fallen. You're guilty of idolatry. But I will give you my righteousness, my white garments. Like Isaiah of old prophesied in chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of righteousness. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus is willing to give you his righteousness? Aren't you glad this morning that he's willing to deposit into your account his goodness to make you appear before his Father pure and holy? And aren't you glad that there's nothing that you can do to earn that righteousness? You don't sound very glad. Aren't you glad? If you're feeling unworthy this morning, that's because you are. It's because I am. Don't let the world tell you you're worthy. We're not worthy. But by God's grace, by God's salvation, we can stand pure and righteousness before the throne. And Jesus says to this church, I want to give you purity. I want to give you righteousness to put on in exchange for your filthy garments. Look at the last piece of counsel he gives and give them salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. In other words, to acquire enlightenment. Remember, this church is in a city known for its cutting-edge ophthalmology and for its eye products. Jesus says, you're actually blind. How about that? And you need to obtain from me a spiritual salve. Psalm 19, 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This church needed their eyes enlightened. They needed their eyes opened. They were blind to the danger of their tepid faith. They'd become numb to their spiritual plight. To a city known for its banking institutions, Jesus says you're poor. You need to acquire from me gold that will never perish. That is faith. To a city known for its fine linens, its looms, Jesus says acquire from me garments. That is righteousness. And to a city known for its medical school, for its ophthalmology and eye salve, Jesus says acquire from me salve for your eyes. That is enlightenment that I alone can provide, so your eyes may be opened. For while all of these conditions are hidden to the human eyes, Jesus sees through our false exterior appearances, and he sees straight to our heart. You see, that same counsel is available for you and I today. We claim to be rich, to have acquired our wealth, to need nothing. We're comfortable, we're content, but if we're not careful, we can become spiritually poor, blind, and naked. And when we do, Jesus 
says our faith is of no use. Is it any wonder, then, that tens of thousands of churches are closing? Perhaps churches are becoming so spiritually lukewarm that Jesus is finished with them all across the United States. Here's the good news in the text, and I'm glad this text doesn't end on, on such a heavy note. The good news for the Laodiceans and for you and I, Jesus hasn't quite spit them out yet. While the condition of their faith and deeds makes them him want to vomit, he's going to give them a chance. There are four things I want you to see in this text that ought to bring you encouragement this morning. If you're afraid, you've become a little too tepid, a little too lukewarm. Four things that are true about our Savior. They're not rocket science. I think you already know them. But first of all, Jesus loves us enough to discipline us. How many of you know that there's a difference between discipline and punishment? We punish someone when we send them away for life to prison for a crime that they committed. We put them behind bars for life to punish them. Discipline, on the other hand, has a rehabilitative quality to it. When we discipline someone, we seek to bring about change in them. And that's what we do when we discipline our children, is it not? We want to bring about change in them. That's what Jesus says in the first part of verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here's what's interesting about this. Jesus hasn't yet disciplined this church. This seems to be more of a warning, which leads us to the second piece of good news about our Savior. Not only does he love us enough to discipline us, but Jesus is merciful. In the second part of verse 19, he tells them, So be zealous and repent. There's that word zealous again. It's the word for hot water. Jesus says, don't accept the tepid faith. Be zealous for me. Repent, he continues. And if you will, if you will, I'll forgive you. It's like catching your child in the act of doing something they shouldn't be doing and saying, I love you enough to discipline you, but if you'll see the wrong in your actions, if you'll say you're sorry, if you'll mean it, if you'll change your ways, I won't discipline you. Aren't you glad that God is merciful? If you've never heard mercy defined before, here's a good definition. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. People oftentimes get grace and mercy confused. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It means that God looks at our situation and says, I will discipline you if I have to, but I'd rather not. Jesus already took the discipline you deserved. I'd rather you listen to me. I'd rather you see the error of your ways. Jesus is merciful. The third thing we see is that Jesus is near. Listen to verse 20. It's familiar. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this verse has been for decades used as an evangelistic invitation. That's how I was taught it growing up in all the, the different evangelism tools that I learned as a teenager to share my faith. It was given to me as one of those verses but that's not actually completely accurate to the text here. Jesus says to this church, I'm standing outside the church. You've replaced me with something that is artificial. You don't even realize it, but I'm right here. If only you would have an ear to hear and listen, you'd find that I'm knocking and I want to come in. This isn't an invitation to conversion. I'm not saying it's inappropriate to apply it that way, but, but these are already believers. This is an invitation to a renewal of a relationship with Christ that has already begun. They are already loved by him. Verse 19 tells us. This is a reminder that Jesus is near. 
Fourth and finally, we see that Jesus rewards overcomers. He rewards overcomers. This has been a consistent theme throughout the letters, and we find it again here in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The timing of this rule or the exact nature of this rule is ambiguous, but what isn't ambiguous is the promise that those who refuse to allow their faith to take a low profile, those who overcome the temptations to compromise, and those who maintain a faithful witness will be granted a ruling position in the messianic kingdom. Can I ask you something this morning? Are you like the Christians in Laodicea? Has your faith become rather dull? Does it lack passion and zeal that you know it should have? If we took the temperature of your faith today, would we find it to be hot or cold or just lukewarm? C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. As we close this morning, may I ask you how important is your faith in Christ? Are you zealous? Are you passionate? Do you bring healing and refreshment to the world around you by the faith that is in you? Or are you just content to talk about those things, but to never catch the power of the Holy Spirit and move out into action for Jesus? Heed the words of Jesus, his counsel, accept from him the things that really matter, and stop trusting in the things that don't. He loves you enough to discipline you if he has to. He is merciful and won't if you'll repent. And if you don't feel his presence, listen closely because you'll hear his knock. He wants to renew your faith. Seven letters in all. And while they were addressed to churches in a place and time far away, they have extreme applicability to us here in 2022 in this place. Every letter ended in the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. If you're within the sound of my voice today and you hear these words, it means you are addressed. You have an ear to hear. So let me ask you the question I began the series with. Which letter is addressed to you? Are you like those in Ephesus who did the right things but had lost the love for others and for Jesus? Or are you like those in Smyrna who are suffering for your faith, perhaps in your home or workplace, and you just need to be encouraged to remain faithful? Maybe you're like those in Pergamum who were accepting too much sin in their lives and needed to take out the trash. Or maybe your faith looks more like the church in Thyatira who had become far too tolerant. They've been listening to those who make excuses for sin and not holding others accountable for such false teachings. Perhaps you're like those in Sardis who had the appearance of life. They had a reputation for being alive, but in reality, they were nothing more than spiritual zombies. Or maybe you look like Philadelphia. You have doors of opportunity in front of you that God has placed, and you're praying for the courage and the strength to walk through them. Or perhaps, finally, you find yourselves identifying with this church today, Laodicea. Your faith is neither hot nor cold. You've gotten to a place, sadly, where you have little, if any, value, spiritually speaking, to Christ, his kingdom, his church, and the world. And you need to repent. You've got mail from Jesus over these last seven weeks. Will you obey?